Hello, I'm Keegan Sands, and welcome back to Ship It, the podcast from Depth Agency that's made by engineers for engineers. ShipIt's changing in some really exciting ways. We're aligning ourselves with Rocket Insight's European parent company, Dept, to connect you with not just our engineers, but engineers from all over the world and other parts of Dept, who have all built some really cool things. This week, we've gathered four of these worldwide Depsters to talk about 3D modeling. To kick things off, how about we go around and introduce ourselves? Matt, why don't you go first? So, uh, yeah, thank you so much, uh, Keegan, for... Uh... For introducing me, uh, my name is Matt. I'm a lead front-end developer at DTNL, which is the design and technology branch of Dept in the Netherlands. Myself, I'm uh, located in Amsterdam. I uh, currently live behind the Artist uh, Zoo. So if you're ever in Amsterdam, you should definitely visit that. I wake up to the sound of elephants, so that's pretty cool. I've been very fortunate at Dept to be able to work uh, with 3D from the start. So we've been uh, at DTNL. We're still finding our footing when it comes to 3D. Uh, and I've been fortunate enough to work on most of the projects that we've been doing. Yeah, basically, it's been a journey since uh, the start of the year ago where we first started with our own digital debt festival, uh, which also was the introduction for some of our American partners that joined the company at that time. And they uh, they saw the first 3D thing that I did. So that was pretty nerve wracking. And uh, following that, we did some more 3D projects for uh, some of our international clients, the Eurovision, for example, Eurovision Festival. And we recently went live with a, a large 3D uh, campaign for the Biocorp, which is a, uh, a pretty large warehouse in the Netherlands. To just trying to learn more and more, very happy to learn from all the other Debsters, just trying to get better with WebGL and, uh, in general. So that's me. All right. Thanks. Um, let's go to Rachel next. Hi, everyone. I'm Rachel Cares. I am the design director over at Byte New York. I kicked it off with that team back in 2017 to begin the office um, with a few folks like Tobias Cummins and Claire Schalbrack. We've been dabbling with 3D for quite a while, and I think we've just realized over the past couple of years how important 3D is in the advertising and marketing space because it allows you to you know, interact with a product that you might be purchasing. So it can be that much more convincing and also can make traditional advertising much more engaging and exciting. And that at Byte is really what we try to do on a daily basis to make sure that ads that we create are not your typical and that they actually don't even feel like a typical ad to begin with. So you might be scrolling along your feed and it just feels like another piece of content that you'd like to to interact with. And I think 3D has really allowed us to, to bridge that gap with our audiences. Yeah, because what could be better than being able to see the texture and color lighting of the product that you're thinking of purchasing? Right. So I would say that's like where we've been uh, focusing and like what's really driven us to try to incorporate 3D into everything. And and in a bit, I'll get into how we've really gotten 3D sold into our clients. It wasn't easy at first, but usually we incorporate 3D across all of our work streams, including social and organic paid media uh, performance across platform for AR lenses, NFTs, and also like one-off character development. Can't wait to hear more about it. Jake, tell us about yourself. Hey there. Uh, thanks for having me. My name is Jake Rannis. I'm a principal engineer at Rocket Insights uh, out of the Depth Boston office. And uh, I've been an engineer working in software for several years with uh, Depth and Rocket, but 
as far as 3D goes, I'm actually relatively new to it. I came into, I actually started in graphic design and, you know, have experience in design to a certain degree, enough to be dangerous, but have been fallen more to the technology side. And recently on a project that we've been working on with Algorand, creating a uh, white label NFT marketplace, actually had the opportunity to dip my toes into 3D uh, via Blender and 3JS. And so it's something that I'm relatively new to, excited to be around so many heavy hitters here and learn more. But we're also starting to see a lot more opportunities in which we can employ 3D into our experiences uh, and into our applications and, and websites. So really excited to talk more about that. And it's interesting to see how NFTs are starting to come into this realm where people are buying these virtual assets and otherwise intangible goods. And we've actually been using 3D to try to bridge the gap between what is virtual and what is real, trying to create nostalgic experiences through pack opening experiences and whatnot. So yeah, excited to be here. Thanks. And last but not least, here's Rick. Tell us about yourself. Cool. Um, thanks for having me. I'm a senior front-end dev at the Debt UK office in Manchester. I predominantly specialize in sort of post-processing and shaders with 3JS. So that's something that I tend to do um, in my spare time. But also there are some like green shoots in the DT UK office where we're seeing like clients want to take up more and more sort of 3D configurators, 3D experiences. We're getting to the point where we want to sort of involve it more in the design process. So more for further upstream than the development process. That's pretty much me. Yeah. All right. Well, let's go back to Matt. Can you talk more about working on the Eurovision site, the design process? I'm really interested in how do you work with a designer doing this and and talk through like the process for getting that Eurovision site up and running and moving well i think what is important to know is the reason for why we did this so the netherlands was the country that won the last version of the uh, eurovision rotterdam eventually won the tender for the eurovision festival and they spent the entirety i believe it was 2019 to get the entire city ready to get uh, all the the magical feeling of the eurovision to the rotterdam city because rotterdam is not the first city that you think of when you think of the netherlands you usually think of amsterdam because amsterdam is synonymous with the netherlands so the Rotterdam had a, a pretty big job um, to get itself on the map. They had a huge opportunity. When that first got cancelled uh, because of COVID, it was a huge downer on most of the festivals in uh, all around the world. Uh, Rotterdam wanted to one-up themselves the upcoming year by bringing that magical Eurovision feeling to everyone around the world. Depth got involved with the city of Rotterdam, which is the party uh, responsible for the city marketing. Um, through one of the earlier uh, 3D projects that we did. They, uh, they knew us through a mutual client and they invited us to pitch for that uh, project. So how this all started, they basically saw a 3D world that we did for uh, the Dutch and Flemish Amazon. And they said, well, that's basically what we want. Just give us this 3D environment, uh, slap some buildings from Rotterdam on there and we'll go live with it. And this will do for the Eurovision. Then the whole process starts where uh, you're going to convince them that this is actually not going to work. Because last year, we saw around 180 million people uh, watch the live shows. We estimated that around a potential of 180 million people could visit our experience. So we had to do something that resonated with all of them. 
Um, so we went back to the drawing board and saw what is Eurovision and how do we translate to the digital. And the most important of Eurovision is um, the feeling that everyone is the same and everyone can come together and everyone is equal. When we went into the design process, uh, we knew that we wanted to have the points of interest of Rotterdam at the center of the entire experience. And Rotterdam has a few points of interest that are uh, to the people of Rotterdam what make the city what it is. And there's the, the river flowing through it, some of the buildings uh, and a lot of people actually in the final result that we built. Um, we have 20 points of interest that are buildings, but we also have around 100 points of interest that are people, people that make the city what it is to make people Rotterdam. In our process, we mostly did a, uh, an agile scrum process where we went back and forth with the designers and the developers. Uh, we had some dedicated uh, UX designers that came up with the interaction of how the 3D world um, would work. They would then uh, talk this over with the developers and then eventually go to, to the 3D modelers and we would sit together and see, hey, what we want to do, is this feasible? Uh, is this going to work on desktop? Is this going to work on mobile? And most importantly, is this going to work for everyone around the world? Because the content that we're showing them is uh, going to be uh, viewed on Android devices, Apple devices, but also people that don't necessarily uh, speak the language or people that are uh, somewhat visually uh, in, uh, impaired. So there was a lot of variables that we had to, uh, to keep in mind. And eventually we went for a simplified version of uh, Rotterdam. So what we did is we um, built a baseline uh, for Rotterdam based on uh, maps from Mapbox. So we got uh, basically just the flat uh, surface of Rotterdam, had a map, uh, and then we started enriching that. And one of the first layers that we did was uh, incorporating downtown Rotterdam. We did this by um, fetching data from the municipality of Rotterdam. Uh, they apparently had a huge database with information uh, about where every building in the entire city is, how high it is, and uh, also uh, at what angle the roof is slanted. So we had this huge data set of JSON uh, that we loaded into our 3D canvas. And uh, this was actually one of the main pain points of getting this into the WebGL. Because we initially thought that uh, we could use this JSON to, um, to generate a height map from it. We would create an image out of it, black and white image in Photoshop. We would throw it in the, uh, in the WebGL and uh, the white gets extruded. So uh, we had this map extruded the city and uh, it wouldn't run because it was too detailed. So uh, we then had the problem of making the, the height map too detailed would crash the application, making it not detailed enough, would add jagged edges to all the buildings. So all the buildings would have jagged edges. So eventually one of our developers, uh, Adrian, who's a brilliant guy, came up with the idea, yeah, we're, we're just gonna build all the uh, vectors ourselves. So what he did, he just created a huge for loop that looped over all this JSON, uh, grabbed the coordinates, mapped them to the 3D scene and basically just built little meshes for every building that somehow worked and was super performance. So uh, we then had the Mapbox map, downtown Rotterdam, and then uh, our 3D modelers started uh, filling in all the more important 3D uh, models of the city, uh, which were either purchased models because every model for the city is built by way more talented uh, 3D artists that we could simply buy and implement in the city. We added our animations to it. And then uh, all we had left to do was basically come up with an art style because in the process, the first thing that we did was basically made a huge proof of concept that kind of evolved into the final concept. 
so we had this whole 3D world, and then we had to figure out how, what actually the art style for this was going to be. We eventually went with a very light style where everything is very concrete-y. Uh, so it has a concrete texture, but all the buildings that are in there, all the points of interest are very detailed, sort of photorealistic, and all the most important parts in the experience is what, uh, is what jump out. So we then use this 3D world to incorporate all the different events that uh, the city of Rotterdam had intended for the Eurovision Festival because the 3D world that we created was uh, running in parallel next to the live shows that were still on the television. But uh, the city of Rotterdam organized talks. They planned two concerts where we had Afrojack, which is a world-renowned uh, Dutch DJ, uh, they put him on top of a bridge. Uh, when it opens, the entire surface of the road raises up. So they had Afrojack um, doing a DJ set on top of that uh, of that bridge. And that is something that you would see in a live stream on our platform. So the entire platform had two purposes, showing all of these awesome events, uh, all of these events that took place on Vimeo, that took place on YouTube, that took place uh, during a nine-day lasting live stream where the city of Rotterdam would have um, a production team ready 24-7 that would just be pushing out all these events, editing everything, looping it all. And all we had to do was just show it um, in the 3D world. So users that would go to that 3D world they could do something besides looking around in the 3D city, but actually look at the live stream and see what the city is about. That is what the Rotterdam Festival was. And I could continue about some of the issues that we found. Uh, or maybe someone wants to ask something or... Uh, it's not so much a question, more so a comment. I'm sure we can all share the struggle that we've had with file size <laughs> and detail and texture that we would love to incorporate into these pieces. And I think that that is something that is still being worked out for 3D, right? Like we've made it so far, but there's a lot of progress to be made there because we have these high aspirations to make it look quite honest um, and that is like the goal for 3D, right? That's the only way that we'll be able to convince people to interact with it more so in the future in other ways like metaverse. But yeah, I mean, with the jagged edges and everything, there's right now a compromise that we have to make per platform to see like how far we can push it. Um, I know with like Snapchat and TikTok, it's just, it's so small. <laughs> the file size is so small, yet we have these amazing programs like Redshift plug-in for Cinema 4D that gives us these beautiful textures and it's just so real looking. Um, so it's painful to not be able to apply them just yet. But I think in, in our own ways, we're figuring out the little uh, workarounds <laughs> and that's the magic. It sounds like uh, what you're saying, like Adrian was able to come up with that workaround from like taking this uh, like gigantic uh, height map and uh, this gigantic JSON data set and then actually create like a procedurally different meshes out of it. I'm, I'm curious, like with um, like Matt, you had kind of described this as like a, a proof of concept that kind of grew in fidelity and then you later applied the art style. I imagine like this is kind of a unique treatment of like a 3D experience, but I guess it could also be argued that no two 3D experiences are the same. So like, is there a certain like process that you and the team take when you're ideating something like this? Does it always start out with the proof of concept with the art style and design coming later? Yes, it does. For these projects, we usually try to take more of a approach that a game studio uh, would. In the Netherlands, we're usually working on larger commerce platforms or content platforms 
And we try to uh, apply the way that we do project management on that, on the, uh, the 3D campaigns as well. But that doesn't really work because there's, uh, well, first of all, there's too much overhead. There's a lot of people that bring opinions to the project. They, they come from a good heart, but they're not necessarily uh, contributing to the project. So we really had to find our approach in how do we build this and how do we meet this deadline? Because we had to do the entire project in uh, three to four weeks. Uh, including finding a partner to doing a live stream integration that works for potentially a hundred million people. Uh, so that was uh, quite a big of, uh, of a challenge, but I think that the team makes the process. So if you work with people that are like-minded, that want to uh, push for results, that really starts forming its own process. And if I would have to do this project again, I would do it 100% differently with all the knowledge that we have now. And uh, we are doing it differently, but um, yes, it was quite of a learning curve to figure out what the way of working was that worked for us. And also with all the integration partners that we, uh, that we had, uh, for example, one of the integration partners was an event agency and they do large scale events where you have tens and twenties of thousands of people, but they've never done them online. They were able to set up a festival with a few 10,000 people, but as soon as you move it online, it's a completely different ballpark. And then trying to work with a digital agency that's also uh, trying to find its footing was uh, was very interesting, but I'm glad that we pulled it all off in, uh, in the end. I've got a quick question. How did you find like cross-browser compatibility with the project? Was that Was that a pain point or was that something that quite smooth or... We've had most of our issues with iOS devices, surprisingly. We've had one uh, significant issue that uh, we've only recently been able to pinpoint uh, a year after the project is, uh, is finished, which um, was a memory leak in iOS. The Apple phones are very efficient with their hardware. That's why they don't need as powerful hardware as an Android phone would that uh, has to service a lot of different vendors that make use of the Android hardware. So Apple is very efficient, but we were throwing a website at it with 3D models that were 15 megabytes large with several textures, uh, which would add up to, I believe, eight megabytes of textures. And at some point, our iOS app would, uh, would just crash. So we've, we've had a lot of debugging to do. And the simplest solution in the end was, um, was just reducing the file size and the quality of the textures that no one really noticed if you saw it for the first time because the experience in itself uh, carried itself. It wasn't reliant on lower quality textures. So iOS, I believe, was our biggest pain point. Um, we've not had much issues with um, browser compatibilities, more so in the Next.js app serving the 3D uh, than we had in the 3D itself. The, the biggest struggle we actually had was getting the 3D model, the GLT uh, FL, uh, converted to React components. We've had uh, quite a few issues getting all the everything that the 3D modelers uh, made in super high fidelity to have that somewhat matching in web. So uh, yeah, no, not, not so much in the in the browser issue uh, or in the browser compatibility uh, apart from the iOS uh, issue. That was surprisingly smooth actually. And I, I attribute that to how well 3GS in, in, in an extent of that React 3 fiber has been uh, written. And Paul Henschel has been a goat when it comes to 3D. He's also been very helpful on Twitter. He actually directly contributed to this project. So yeah, great tooling made our work very easy. Great. Thanks for that. So Rachel, I was curious, Matt talked a lot about, it was all web-based and it sounds like some of some of the stuff that you've worked on at Byte has been AR, 
like all that sort of stuff. Can you talk more about how you interact with that differently than perhaps using the web? As far as I know, we don't have a lot of experience with web just yet where we want to get into that space. So I could tell you with social, all these uh, platforms have their own programs to create these lenses in. Uh, so we often, of course, start in one of the 3D modeling programs like Cinema 4D or Blender or Maya and take that, bring it into the the program to see what we're really working with, because without doing that, we don't know, like we can make it as beautiful as we'd like. But again, going back to the whole discussion around file size, uh, we don't know what's actually feasible um, and how it applies to the model of uh, the humanoid so that we could see like how that person's interacting with it until we we get into that program, right? And these programs are so new still, uh, and they're constantly being updated with new features to make the experience better. Um, so I'd say that's probably the biggest challenge for us right now is staying up to date with each of these platforms to to know what is possible and to know how to like use it to its full potential. Uh, so. Actually, I think Spark just announced that they've they've been talking about it for for over a year now, but they just discussed that the motion tracking for body movement and hand movement is something that we can really work with now. Um, more so, it was like in beta before, and, and it was not the greatest. Um, and I know that TikTok is doing the same, but still. Uh, when we talk with these platforms, it's so new to them as well. Um, and Byte has become a partner with TikTok and Snapchat to help them with uh, AR. So AR is a big area where, you know, Byte leans in for their 3D work. And so we aid these platforms and how the work can come to life in 3D, which is funny because you think that they're the experts, <laughs> but um, they need people, you know, like us to, to really help test things and try them out. So as someone who's designing things in 3D, is there less of a reliance on developers? Matt was saying like, oh, I have to go out and I have to like convert all these things to React components. And does it make it easier for you using these platforms to go to market with these things? It depends on the type of action you want within that lens. What is that trigger to make the action happen? Uh, and these platforms definitely do make it easier <laughs> without developers to to just make it a little bit more feasible for a designer to go in and apply uh, a trigger to a, a mouth movement, an eye movement or hand movement. But we're realizing that uh, we often have to work with our tech team over in London to uh, bring in some code to make like the really cool stuff happen. And, and that's really what we want. Um, these platforms still are doing the minimum there. There's a lot to be worked out. So yeah, we definitely have to plus it up with uh, our tech team over in London. So Rachel, if I if I can tie into that. So you're saying that um, Spark, for example, and all these platforms are, they're really embracing it 3D. So they're they're making use of it and they're incorporating as part of, um, of who they are and what they offer. Mm -hmm. Do you feel that 3D has a lasting uh, spot in web? Do you feel that it is becoming something that's actually part of an experience and not just a gimmick that could be replaced with something else? I think we will always figure out how to replace one amazing thing to something that one-ups it eventually, of course, because, hey, I mean, 
holograms could be next. <laughs> but I, I think that 3D is so important to our, our future and like how we get to the next thing. And so I'd say that 3D has a lot of progress to be made. We're, we're really just scratching the surface still. And so I think when it comes to web with these immersive experiences, like, a, you know, a small metaverse to experience a concert or re-envision what even company websites can look like to see like what that company can offer and whatnot. There's so many ways that 3D really catapults us into this next I think, phase of how we interact with digital. I think it's going to be a a big star in how we kind of transition from the internet over to the metaverse as well. So without 3D, we can't really get there just yet because 3D is the way we convince people that they'll have a genuine experience. Rachel, when you, you mentioned like you engage developers at a certain point to do certain cool things, but like if um, given those platforms make it a little bit easier to transition like a design into that technology, are there certain, there's certain specializations or tools that you use? Like, as you mentioned Cinema 4D at one point, is that your kind of go-to tool for an experience like that? Uh, So far, personally, I have to say that I myself have a lot to learn still. Um, <laughs> and the teams over in London, Berlin, and New York are the real superstars here uh, on the bite side. But the classes I've taken do focus on Cinema 4D. Um, and I love those plugins like Redshift to make things look beautiful. But I would say that I think Blender is where it's at because it's more accessible for creators And I'm kind of fed up with Adobe Suite making it really difficult for artists to afford the tools they need to create. So um, I know that over in the London team, especially they host days where the whole design team just like gets right into Blender and messes around with it um, just to, to really learn it. And so that everyone can have some experience because I also think as a, even a graphic designer, an animator, an illustrator, these tools like Blender can apply to your future. You know, you don't need to be a 3D artist specifically. I think 3D is going to be a big ask for any of those disciplines. Did that answer your question? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, cool. (laughs) Thank you. Can I ask a question? So how much like R&D do you invest in these types of technologies? Because that must be a really important factor to like stay ahead of the curve make sure it's compelling to your users and things like that. You know, in advertising, it's always a hectic time. (laughs) You know, there's ebbs and flows throughout the year. um, And Q4 right now is always the craziest of them. But uh, we do our best to set aside time for what we call like proactive work, R&D. And I think the London team, they're, they're a bit bigger. They have a few more years on their belt than Byte New York does, but they set aside time to do that. Uh, my, myself on the New York team and a, a little team I've created to focus on that type of work, people who have shown interest in wanting to know 3D, we set aside like chunks of the day once in a while to, to just sit down and create um, with no brief really. Uh, and I think that that's the best way to go about it. But we also look at all of our clients and pinpoint any weak spots and set aside some proactive time to consider how can 3D elevate their work and the audience's experience. So we do that as well. But I'd also say 
I, I think like risk is the secret to 3D success um, so far at Byte. I'll never forget the way that we convinced Spotify to allow us to promote new music releases with AR. Um, and specifically the experience when Kodak Black was coming out with Dying to Live. And at the time, there was a little video of him that went viral where he was dancing in his studio. And it was a very simple little dance. And it just felt serendipitous. We were like, we, we, this is big. He's, it, this album is long awaited. And this video of him doing this little jig is blowing up right now. It would be a missed opportunity if we didn't try to recreate that in 3D and put it out there for a world lens for the release of his new album. Um, Because we're trying to come up with all these other ideas on how to get like that engagement high, right? And so we knew that Spotify wasn't comfortable with it, but we decided to just go for it anyway um, and so we did it for free and we did it in three days and it gave us the momentum we needed to then like have this really wonderful relationship uh, where we ended up creating many more lenses together. So, yeah, sometimes it's just a little bit of risk, you know? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Like that's, that's, that's a cool story. And I saw the little AR thing. That was, it was super cool. And that was the first that we did too. So scrappy at best, I would say, but it was, (laughs) (laughs) it was something we were really proud of. And um, to me, it was kind of a, an indicator of like the, the beginning really of our 3d work. Cool. Rick, so you sent along um, a presentation of something that you had shown. And I think this risk is something that you were trying to kind of promote to folks that you work with saying like, we really need to look into this. I, I did go through your the, the WebGL Slack, which, and I saw the, I saw when you, you, you had this breakthrough moment and you were like, I need to tell somebody. Can you talk <laughs> about that specific thing that you did and touch on what you were trying to convince people of at Depth UK? And also like, We've talked about how like the tech's not there yet. Can you talk about like your struggle and why it was so hard to figure out how to do the stuff that you did for that that particular video? Sure, yeah. In DTUK, so the uh, the UK Depth Office in Manchester, we we do a lot of work with like e-commerce sites, and one of the one of the things that I've been trying to do over the past uh, like I'd say months would be to try and uh raise awareness of what's actually possible because i think a lot of the time um in terms of web webgl and 3d on the web in particular so for example like configurators other websites like so for example there's a well-known website on bnq in the uk that do like uh like a paint configuration on a wall and it's just it's trying to raise awareness of like what's actually possible and one of the ways that I did that was to work on like a side project so it, it took 10 days so it's not perfect but um it's it's yeah it's all right it, it was basically a car configurator because the reason why I chose that was because I know that we have clients that that work in the automotive industry and that was a perfect opportunity to try and promote that with the clients with uh, people at depths in the UK office and in particular, the project that you're referring to, the sort of like mini car configurator, there were so many trials and tribulations with that, like late nights, like just getting so frustrated. Um, one of the, the key breakthroughs was um, sort of chaining effect composers. So that's like 
basically doing a special effect on the web on like WebGL. So originally I had volumetric lights, um, which I wanted to try and have like clouds and like simulate the light through the clouds, which I thought would be really cool for the intro sequence. You know what? It would have been amazing to have that, but like volumetric, anything volumetric in WebGL is just intensive on the CPU and GPU. I had like a fallback plan of using like Bloom um, on the headlights to try and simulate the car light. And it seemed to work all right. It was not as good as the volumetric light, but obviously, yeah, it worked. In, in particular, like when you start, you, you can get to a situation where you you delve into like 3JS and you realize like how far down the rabbit hole you can actually go. There's so many things you can do with it. Like for example, clouds, which is another thing that I specialized in like earlier on in the year. I, I literally spent four weeks doing that and getting volumetric clouds working. I agree with the story that everything cool that you want to do in WebGL is just too heavy for the for the GPU. So. Yeah. Are there good resources out there for that? Like when you are struggling because it's so niche, it's really hard to find like the people or the you can't just Google and it's in Stack Overflow because it's like so niche. I mean, it's like you'll never get the exact answer that you're you're after. You'll always have to like so. For example, with clouds, you you look at how can I render 3D noise because clouds are essentially 3D noise, like layers of 3D noise. So you look, you'll Google like, how do I do volumetric rendering with Perlin noise on the web? And you'll come up with a really good example with the 3JS library that's actually on their website. Um, and at the time, I didn't really realize that, but uh, <laughs> that uh, probably slowed me down by about four weeks. <laughs> but yeah, so it's, it's, it's essentially, it's like, you you need to kind of know what to google which is half the problem like because if you're if you're completely new to it you won't know much about noise you won't know volumetric rendering even ray marching for example all these topics and to be fair there are some very good resources on individual topics but when it comes to like whole projects putting it together i suppose no agency is going to give away all their secrets so (laughs) That's a perfect segue to somebody who is new to the subject. Jake, I know that you just came into this, like you gave a shout out to your team. Like, thank you all for letting me go on a, a hunt to figure out how to do this. Can you talk about the, the work that you recently did to just like hit the ground running, like the steps that you went through, any good resources? Like, what was that process like to learn 3D for people out there who may not know about 3JS? My 3D bender. I went on, I went on it for about three weeks. Um, <laughs> we were working with Algorand and we were making this white labeled open source marketplace so that brands and NFT creators could open up their own storefronts. And one of, we had, we had looked at a lot of other NFT marketplaces, NBA, Topshot, OpenSea, um, other, other things in this kind of new blockchain NFT industry where we're seeing more and more 3D being used. And we had talked from the beginning, it would be really nice if we could incorporate something like this into our platform, even if it's just kind of baseline, and then we could augment it or reuse it in for future implementations, just but just to have something and kind of go on that exploration. And so I, uh, I had the opportunity to do that. And I had messed around with 3JS before. I had, um, and this is probably back in 2014, where I was just trying to add little effects to like my portfolio website at the time. But uh, I had never, I'd never, it was more kind of like um, lifting code from places like Stack Overflow or example sites. I had never really jumped into the library myself. And so as I was 
kind of getting into it kind of like as, um, you know, as Rick was just saying, knowing what to Google was difficult. And I know where I, I kind of knew where I had to get to. I had to learn the fundamentals of 3JS. But then also I knew that I had to, the actual application that we were writing was actually in React. And so what I was aware of at the time um, through joining the WebGL channel at Dept is that there is this, uh, as Matt mentioned, Paul Henschel wrote this really impressive library. He's written many impressive libraries, but this one's called React 3 Fiber. And it is basically an abstraction layer on top of 3JS that allows you to write composable 3JS within JSX. And so I was like, well, I'll just learn 3JS Fiber and just take the shortcut. And uh, that was, <laughs> was not the way to go because um, it actually involved, uh, in order to, to use React 3 Fiber, you actually have to know a lot about 3JS and what it's doing under the hood. So I kind of started from the beginning and uh, I, I definitely have some good resources to plug. Um, I don't like to be too prescriptive about how someone should learn, but in a place where it seemed like there was a lot of very, very beginner tutorials and then a very, a lot of very advanced tutorials, but not somewhere in between, which is kind of what I needed. I found um, there is uh, there's the 3jsfundamentals.org website, which is a little bit more of an approachable version of the docs and the kind of core um, foundational aspects of 3JS and what they do, what they mean, how they can be used. And then I also found this online course. Uh, it's a video course that you can buy. It's very reasonably priced. It's 3JS-journey.xyz. And it is by Bruno Simon. And he basically takes you from the very, very beginning all the way through, you know, it's a 40-hour plus course from the very, very beginning, 3JS building blocks all the way through shader language. And um, so a lot of long nights and weekends going through that, but it was a lot of fun because it very quickly you get up and running and you're like, wow, just following these examples, I can see how powerful this all becomes. So I went down that path and you know, within a week was making some really cool stuff and, un and more importantly, actually understanding what I was doing to make that, make that cool stuff. Eventually got to the point where I was like starting to read the 3JS documentation and follow this course. But then later on in that day, I would read the React 3 Fiber documentation. And then like one day I'd be like, mm, that still doesn't quite make sense to me. And then it finally got to a point where every day I was reading that documentation more and more. And it was starting to kind of bridge the gap between the two. And I finally got to this point where I was like, you know what, I'm just going to kind of jump off and now go down the React 3 Fiber route and try to integrate whatever this pack experience that we were trying to build was going to be. We didn't necessarily have a lot of clear direction for what that was going to be, but we kind of thought there would be this 3D Mylar card pack that was similar to like baseball cards or Pokemon cards or magic cards or cards that you might have as a child that would kind of create some sort of, some sort of nostalgia. And we would try to animate this in 3D space and open it to reveal what was ever going to be in the NFT drop that you purchased. It worked closely with uh, one of our designers. We explored this new software. It's called Spline, and it is meant to be a much more approachable alternative to something like Blender or Cinema 4D. But with that approachability comes a drastic reduction in capability. We were trying to manipulate like a 3D card pack in this, and we, we went through some different um, trial and error. And then I was thinking, you know what, a part of bridging this whole gap of 3D experiences for me is actually going to be getting my hands dirty with some of the design as well. So I explored some Blender and Cinema 4D tutorials. 
to the point where I was actually able to construct a pretty realistic looking Mylar card pack with perforations and, you know, bevels and extrusions, and then also apply like shiny Mylar textures. And so we got that into the experience and it, it all, you know, it all ended up working. And it was funny, Rachel said something earlier about how like one of the su- success metrics, I forget, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, I apologize, but you were saying how like one of the, the, the biggest aspects of success was, was also risk for, and like, that was kind of how you, you, know, you approach this AR engagement with Spotify. And I can totally resonate with that because there was like a time in, in this where I was like, all right, well, I'm going to go learn on this. I'm going to go figure out how to do it, but I have no idea how I'm going to do it. And, but you just you keep pushing in that direction and you kind of reduce the amount of unknowns ahead of you. And then you, you eventually you end up with something. And obviously this little car deck is nothing compared to the Eurovision village, but like it was kind of a, you know, it was a big step for me. So Obviously not as much experience as the other folks here, but it was fun coming from a place where I was like, yeah, I know some JavaScript. I don't necessarily know how to approach 3D, but went down this path, figured out how to do it. And now we're really excited to do a whole lot more of it and also excited to be in the company of some very, very talented folks in this space. I don't know, Jake, it sounds like you have a lot of experience. You just learned it all quite quickly. (laughs) I owe a lot of it to this, to this online course and this documentation for sure. Send me the link. <laughs> I absolutely will. There aren't many people in the field, so you're you're pretty high up in the chain already, just by nature of it being so niche. I'll take it. Jake, we've heard of WebGL and we've heard of the AR stuff. Like, what's your next step? Like, do you want to go deeper in web and learn more about 3JS? Or are you more interested in like looking at these other technologies of throwing some AR into Snapchat? Uh, great question. Um, yes. <laughs> yeah, I want, I want to do it all, honestly. I think what I'm most excited about is figuring out how we can, we can start to use this new or use these new capabilities that we have in the real world, whatever that might look like. If that's AR, then that's something we'll learn, something we'll do. If it's more 3D, that's something we can and have done and will continue to do more of. For me, this is just really exciting because it was a, a big departure from a lot of the code that I am traditionally used to writing, which is just kind of more software and application-based. And I love doing all that too, but this was a, a whole new aspect of it. So I'll really I'll take whatever comes my way, gladly. For a final thought, what, what advice would you give to people aspiring to do this sort of thing that, that want to get into the subject, want to learn about it? Um, let's start with uh, Matt. What do you think? The best approach here is just starting. The WebGL is very difficult. The 3GS will be difficult. The React will be difficult. And the JavaScript will be difficult. And it seems like a mountainous task of stuff that you want to learn, but it, it's perfectly fine to not know everything from the start yet. If, if, if you look at Jake, who learned all of this through a course that only took him 40 hours, that for him was the starting point. So you just need one catalyst that, throws you into this whole process. And for me, it was also the uh, the 3GS journey by uh, by Mr. Simons, uh, whom you might know his portfolio from with the little uh, orange car uh, driving around through all his projects. Um, and he just starting started that from uh, from his passion. He was a, a teacher at the university uh, somewhere in France. Uh, and he started this course because he believed that it was something that everyone could learn. So just keep grinding at it. Eventually it will click and this will be be something that is very easy eventually. But one tip I, 
I want to give everyone that I struggled with is keep your trigonometry and mathematics skills up to date. That is so true. So true. <laughs> That's not encouraging at all. <laughs> <laughs> they kept throwing these things like Euler's formula and parables and Pythagoras theorem. And I was good at this in school, but I had to look everything up how this worked again. So yeah, kids stay in school and learn maths. <laughs> okay. Um, let's go to Rachel next. My one bit of advice I would give to aspiring 3D designers is to get a little weird with it, honestly, because 3D is is the hottest medium right now. Um, it's what everyone wants because it has this unique quality of being able to render an image that is so honest and and realistic um, with texture and lighting. But at the same time, the subject matter can be so abstracted and so otherworldly because you have the opportunity to manipulate and defy the odds of what we know to be realistic with 3D. That's, that's in your court. That's in your control. And so what 3D allows is the unique opportunity to have that juxtaposition that I think only the 3D medium can offer um, compared to uh, 2D traditional animation and illustration. And I think that that's why you need to get a little weird with it um, to stand out amongst your peers, because why create something expected when you can stand out by being quite unexpected? Great. Inspiring. Jake, do you have anything you want to add? Yeah, sure. I guess as someone who is a newcomer, I know that what I found to be most intimidating was seeing all of these incredible things that other folks have done. And I know that this is something that artists and musicians suffer from too, is that you're always trying to compare yourself to someone who's better. And I think it's really important to understand that it's not binary that you are a 3D designer or developer or you're not a 3D designer or developer. There's going to be a spectrum somewhere in between. And so I think it's really important to, to make sure that you're leveling yourself up and not comparing yourself to someone who is doing this a lot better than you only because they've been doing it a lot longer because everyone's going to have their own progression. Um, Rick, final word. Any advice you can give for aspiring designers? From my perspective... In terms of like what I do in in my spare time, like post-processing and shaders and things like that, uh, I would specifically say there's some great tools out there. So like Shader Toy, GLSL, uh, Bin. And these are things that you can like look at, play around with other people's code. So someone's done like an amazing effect. You can play around with it, see like what variables do, things like that. So that's like a super useful tool. And then I'm going to do a shameless plug here because... Uh, <laughs> I think it's a really cool tool. There's a there's a application called ShaderEd, which actually lets you step through shader code and get values from the code. Now, anyone that knows about shaders, like that is like the golden goose. Like nowhere does that. So ShaderEd is definitely a tool if you want to like step through and look at the values in shader code. Do it. Great. All right. Thanks. Um, this has been fantastic, everyone. I I would love <laughs> I could, could go on for hours, like hearing you all speak. This has been um, such a great learning experience. Um, so usually we end an episode of Ship It with some picks. I'll go first as an example. 
my pick for this episode is a video Marcus Eater's ultimate ski run. So it's winter in the Northern hemisphere coming up. And if you are a skier and you want to get excited for the season, this is a great video. It's 10 minutes long. It's uh, the skier worked on this video for a couple of years and it's one long run. If you're not a skier, you should still check it out. Like, it's just amazing the things that this guy is able to do while going down the hill and it's funny. It's got some great music. So um, check out that video. Uh, let's go to Jake. Do you have a pick? Yeah, sure. Um, so I put a YouTube channel that I discovered recently called real life lore. I randomly discovered it. And this guy does these five to 10 minute videos on all sorts of interesting things from humanity, space travel, history, geography, um, all sorts of scientific what ifs, and just very, very fascinating visuals and very, very compelling um, arguments, not even really arguments, just like insane amounts of research uh, that kind of bring some of these claims to light. And so just very interesting and very educational. Okay. Uh, Rachel, what do you got? Okay. So I was on Instagram and Instagram ads are amazing. As we all know, I've purchased too many things over the last couple of years, (laughs) Um, but I got a really helpful one the other day um, for a product device called Luna display. And so for any Mac users out there, uh, this might be really helpful. So I have a massive uh, iMac desktop computer um, that I keep updated And when I got my new laptop from work, um, I realized that I could no longer use the iMac as a second display, like as a monitor. And that was such a bummer to me because I was like, I'm just not using this massive machine that I own. Um, And Luna Display allows you to do that. So it's just like a little USB plug-in that pairs with an app that you put onto uh, the monitor that you want to use as a second display. And it allows it to work. So it's it's in my cart. I haven't purchased it just yet, but I need it. Because <laughs> like, how infuriating is it to have a second machine that's incredible 5K retina screen, you know, and I can't use it. We'll get back to you about my review on how it works. But <laughs> Okay, we'll have a follow-up episode. Uh, Rick, do you have a pick for us? Uh, yeah, Um in the web WebGL sort of like immersive web experiences, I would say follow two studios, one called Lusion and one called Dog Studio, because they are like at the cutting edge of like 3D web immersive experiences. They do amazing work. So if you want inspiration, definitely check out those two uh, studios. Yeah. I can only attest to how good Doc Studio is. I'm a huge fan of their work uh, and I'll link them anywhere if someone talks about WebGL. I, I love what they're doing. Yeah. Cool. Um, and the links for all this will be in the show notes. So if you have a podcast player, just scroll down and you can see a link and you can check out all these uh, picks. All right. Last but not least, Matt, what do you have for a pick? So as a pick, I have uh, someone who, uh, who we mentioned already during the podcast, which is Bruno Simon. He made the 3GS journey, but uh, what he also does, he streams on Twitch. So he will do live modeling in Blender and talk you through it on Twitch. So go sub to his Twitch channel. 
he's making some really cool 3D stuff for a video clip for uh, Woodkit, which you might know as a uh, French artist who makes incredible instrumental music. Bruno and Woodkit apparently are working on some secret project for the Olympics, uh, which are going to be held in France. Uh, he's also doing the intro music, which is already on YouTube. Um, yeah, so go check that out. It's, uh, he's an amazing 3D modeler and Woodkit is an amazing artist. Cool, check that out. Well, thank you all for taking the time out of your days. I know you're very, you're all very busy and um, have a great day.